Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast and coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, I always chuckle because the famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve, but my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So that's the, that's the whole inside uh, joke about uh, brilliant but not famous, but they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing and the passion for the things that they care about. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and with the universe. So today I'm super excited uh, to have on my show, uh, Dr. Richard O'Hara. And uh, Richard is a medical director for oncology and US medical affairs at EMD Serono. Uh, he's an experienced senior director of medical affairs with a demonstrated history of working in the biotech and diagnostics industry. He also spent a, 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 some period of time earlier in his career in academic research, when we're gonna, we'll definitely touch on that because you know much I, I, I love research. Uh, Dr. O'Hara received his PhD from UT Southwestern Medical Center and did some postdoctoral work uh, at the Harvard uh, Medical School. So, uh, Richard, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dave. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, we met um, at a longevity um, event uh, just outside of Boston. I think it was in Saugus um, not too long ago and really enjoyed the conversation getting to know you and so some of my other fans were there too. Uh, my friends, I mean, I should say, not my fans, my friends, Jasmine I think and Taylor. Some of them were fans. And, so, <laughs> and it was just great to meet, uh, you know, a real nice uh, group of people, uh, you know, that spent, uh, I believe it was on a Sunday, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, supporting um, a good organization like Longevity. So uh, I'd like to start today uh, by having you tell us about yourself. And uh, we're both fellow Massachusetts residents, but I'd love to hear about where you're from. And uh, as I like to say to my guests, tell us about the uh, the younger uh, Richard O'Hara. <laughs> Ooh, I have to dig back a ways to find him. Um, <laughs> sure. So, so I actually um, primarily grew up in Texas. Um, my father was. Uh, I came along sort of the, during the second half of my father's career in the U.S. Air Force. So I um, actually lived in Germany and England for a time, but I was a very young child and remember very sporadic pieces of it. Um, we actually moved to San Antonio, which was my father's last station, uh, when I was just before I turned six and stayed there for a while. And then um, my father went, my father retired and went to work for a defense contractor in Dallas. And so that's actually how I ended up in Dallas. Um, Went to undergrad at, at UT Austin um, for no other reason than it was a big campus with a good football team. And so <laughs> go, go it seemed like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, came back home and actually worked at UT Southwestern for uh, about three years in a research laboratory and um, for a, uh, a just the guy who really lit my research spark, uh, Jim Gilliam, who unfortunately passed away quite some time ago. Um, and, uh, worked, worked in, uh, he was, he was a connective tissue or rheumatic 
diseases uh, specialist and so sort of uh, lit my spark in terms of autoimmunity and immunology and uh, which which to be frank I it was a subject I avoided like the plague as an undergrad because it had the reputation of having just a brutal laboratory course that went with the with the lecture series and uh, so started doing uh, research in, in autoimmunity and inflammation at that point. Um, and and uh, after a few years said, okay, I, I really want to have more uh, say and, and more uh, control in the direction that I take things. And so the way to do that was to go to graduate school. And it was fortunate for me that I had met some people and UT Southwestern at the time it had a much longer name, the University of Texas Health Science Center at Dallas, which mercifully they finally went back to Southwestern to, to incorporate the name, um, had a really good immunology program. And uh, uh, it was it was nice because it was a multidisciplinary program. So it was located, it wasn't actually located in a department of immunology. It was in microbiology and cell biology and uh, pathology and, and things like that. So um, got definitely a, a really solid background in in immunology and actually um right about the time i was getting ready to take my qualifying exams so that i could you know do my re finish my research and and be a candidate for a phd uh, my graduate advisor um decided to move uh institutions and um he ended up in halifax nova scotia at, uh, yeah. So, uh, and so my wife and I had, my wife had grown up in Dallas and, and my wife and I had decided that, you know, we'd been in Dallas for a while. This might be a bit of an adventure. Um, plus I had just gotten my graduate advisor broken in. So I really was thinking, you know, don't want to have to do that all over again. So we actually packed up and, and, uh, moved to Nova Scotia for a couple of years. So I finished my degree. The degree still came from the de program at, at uh, Southwestern, um, but I actually finished the work in um, in uh, in Halifax at uh, Dalhousie University in the lab, and uh, it was a fun it was a fun lab. They were just beginning their uh, it was actually in the Department of Surgery, and they were just beginning to try and move into uh, liver transplantation uh, for for the province, and so that was. Uh, some some really interesting work that was going on there, and um, when it came time to find a postdoc, um, was fortunate enough to get accepted to a position at at Harvard in the Department of Pathology and with the Immunology Group, and really sort of told my you know I told my wife I said look we'll we'll move to Boston it'll be meh, two three years finish my postdoc and then we'll look you know some way to get closer to home. Uh, and as you can tell, because I, as you know, I work in Boston, that was a long time ago and somehow never quite found that, you know, ticket back uh, to Texas, which has worked out just fine as far as we're concerned. We've been in New England now for a really long time and consider it home. And so, uh, so it was fun. But that, that sort of sparked the whole, you know, immunology, immune regulation, um, fire that that was was the driving force for a lot of my early research and then um went to work from there for a for a biotech company um out of that because the one one of the important things that i learned from my uh academic career was that i really didn't want to write grants 
I, I really wanted to focus on, you know, on science and things like that. So I naively thought that if I went into uh, more of a biotech atmosphere that, that I would get away from those sorts of things. Turns out not to be a completely accurate thing. There's still, you know, funding mechanisms that have to be found, et cetera. But uh, moved to a small uh, biotech company, which got swallowed up by uh, after a few years by um, a large pharma company, which has then again been swallowed up by another larger pharma company, um, but stayed there for almost 20 years doing essentially basic science immunology research. And uh, you and I had talked about at one point, um, you know, that that during that time we we spent a lot of time on on autoimmunity and transplantation and i've cured a lot of mice um but that's been sort of the uh sort of the extent and what was always missing from that was connecting it back to people connecting it to patients and you know then you can do a lot of things you can learn a lot of interesting basic science um by doing uh preclinical research but at the end of the day what you're trying to accomplish is to find ways to help people. And um, so there was a, a translational piece that was missing um, from what I wanted to do. And um, so I ended up then transitioning essentially into oncology and into medical affairs by uh, going to work for a company in the liquid cancer space, uh, primarily in multiple myeloma on the diagnostic side of things. And that was sort of my first um, entry into the world of medical affairs and MSL-like functions. It wasn't the title I had, but it was essentially what we were doing. That let me get spend a lot of time trying to literally translate. I, I always figure, I always call medical affairs sort of the translational piece for, for any company, we, we can, we, we try to translate the research and, and discovery efforts of the company into things that the medical community can use as, as actionable information. And you also end up actually doing that within your company as well, because the commercial people are trying to figure out what it is the research people are doing um, that, that eventually will be something that they can think about selling. And um, again, you know, with the end goal of bringing it to patients, but the reality is companies obviously exist to, to make money. That's how we stay able to continue to help people. And uh, commercial people sometimes look at the things that are coming out of <clears throat> the research group and a little like somebody speaking Greek or Latin or something. Um, and uh, so the medical affairs people can say, okay, here, you know, can help translate. This is why this is important. This is why you know you should focus on this part and not that other part that you're off busy trying to sell. So it, so we sort of stand in the breach between research, commercial, and the outside uh, end users of what we do, whether it's a diagnostic test or a pharmaceutical or or whatever, and um, try to you know turn all of this into something actionable and something that remind people that there's a human face on it. Because one of the things that, that I do, and it's one of the places that I focus is I will bring things back to the research people and say, you know, this isn't all about statistics and Kaplan-Meier charts. This is about, you know, people. And here's why your patients are doing something different. So that's sort of the, yep. the long-winded version of how I got here. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot there. And, uh, you know, I can unpack a, a few things from from your your history, and can certainly understand with the role that you play now. 
you know, what shaped it, you know, what shaped your thinking on, you know, when you go to work every day because of this experience that you had. And we both recognize, even though you, you cured a lot of mice, there's a, there's a lot of good work that's done in the, in the academic and the basic academic research world that um, I'm always appreciative of, but I totally also agree that, you know, writing grants is something that is, is just, it's one of the things that bothers me as a research evangelist is that, you know, people who are in the lab are spending so much time funding their lab. And most people don't realize that you get a nice position at, you know, uh, you know, UT Southwestern Medical Center doing research, but that doesn't mean they're, they're funding all your research. You have to go out and, and, uh, you know, find some money to support the work that you're doing. So uh, I know, I know that you feel strongly about that as well. Well, you know, that's absolutely true. And um, because essentially, when you sort of look at it, each, um, you know, a tenured professor at a um, at an institution like a UT Southwestern or Harvard, they, they'll have support for themselves. They'll have support for, you know, they can come to work and, and collect a salary and things like that. They can't do any work without raising grant money. And and many of them, I have a, a good friend that I was a postdoc with at Harvard who has gone on to a very successful career staying at Harvard. And I think he's got you know, 25 to 35 people in his lab at any one time. And he's essentially a small business because he walks in the door every morning with, you know, him and maybe one or two other people in the lab group. And they're the part, they're the responsibility to generate the revenue to do all of the great work that he has accomplished and will continue to do. And um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a big burden. It's it's a lot. And, and if you talk to those guys, they will tell you that they spend a tremendous amount of time um, looking for funding sources, whether it's um, federal money from from NIH or whether it's from, uh, you know, organizations that uh, uh, and nonprofits and things and, and, you know, various sources and, and cobble it together so that everybody can can go off and do the things that they will do that will advance the science that will bring us to the next therapy in in lung cancer or to the you know i mean all of the work everybody looks at, at the covid vaccines that have just recently come into being into clinical use and you know there was a lot of uh enthusiasm and a little bit of concern about how rapidly those vaccines were developed um, because it was a it was a new process for much of it. What people don't recognize is that there's ten years worth of basic science research behind that that led them to the platform by which they could develop the vaccine for COVID as rapidly as they did. But that whole ten years had to be you know had to be performed. People had to dedicate tremendous amounts of time and effort to do it, and uh, and and that takes that takes funding. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I uh, met with um, Dr. Fred Alt um, uh, okay. like five or six years ago. And I asked him, we were having lunch. And I just was curious. I said, what, what, like, what keeps you up at night? Like, we're having this really interesting conversation. He says, uh, his answer was losing young people to research because he felt that a lot of people might take a different path because it's just so difficult, right? The whole postdoc funding postdocs and and like you said, it's a small business. I know, and, and I started to see that over, not just with him, but with several other people that I started to meet, that it was like running a small business. It was like making hiring decisions based on an idea you have. Oh, but can I, mm -hmm. afford, like, what if I don't get that grant renewed next year? How am I going to, you know, so all, it, it is such a, 
you know, a challenging, a challenging world. But I, like I said earlier, I, I'm really, you know, appreciative of your having that experience as you, you know, do what you do now. There was a lot, you know, that you learned along the way that I, again, I feel like that really informs how you think about patients and, and getting closer to patients. And, and when we spoke uh, the other day, you told me about um, this, you know, that, that commercial pharma, you know, the people in there are, are there to help patients. And, you know, you mentioned the, you know, as one for patients um, mantra, and I would love to have you tell us what that is and, and why that, what it means to you personally. It, it, uh, so, so as you mentioned, I, I work for EMD Serono and um, have been there for, for essentially two years now. And um, one of the things that I find inspiring and, um, and rewarding every day when I work with the people I work with, I started to say go to work, but I haven't actually done that for two years. Uh, <laughs> I work out of my house. Um, but uh, is, is rem- the people who will go back and, and, and EMD has coined this term and, uh, you know, as one for patients. And, um, it really is the mindset of, of remember why we're here guys, you know, that, that, um, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we, we, we look at in oncology, we always look at, at curves, you know, for, for trying to decide how, how it, compound might be working as we as we're doing clinical trials and as we're testing it and so we'll look at response rates out of statistical groups we'll look at groups of people and um and you've seen you've seen these curves before dave and you know they they step down over time whether you're looking at overall survival or progression-free survival or anything else and one of the things that you kind of have to remember is that each one of those steps is a person that that's a person who has put their faith in the hands of the clinical researchers said, I have this disease, which I'm, you know, very concerned about. I am putting my hands in you, doctor, whoever that is, is helping and participating in a part of this clinical trial. Um, because I think you're offering me the best chance at, at more time at, um, potentially a cure, which is not a word we use a whole lot in oncology, but certainly in, in disease-free time and in more time with every, you know, whatever, whatever time that patient wants to do. And that's one of the things that the DMD has tried to really impress upon people and that, that I talk about with my group all the time is, um, we, is, is, you know, each one of these things is a person and it's, you know, it's not only a patient, but it's the caregivers, it's their family, it's their friends, it's their coworkers, the people who depend on them. You know, what can we do to do that? And and we have an example that I won't go into a lot of detail, but but we had a patient recently with um, a drug that, that we work with who for a couple of different reasons wasn't eligible uh, for the medication. And, um, so multiple people sort of swung into action to say, what can we do about this, uh, individual? Uh, it was a, it was a non-small cell lung cancer patient and, and what can we do? And, and I finally counted one day as we were working our way through the process, which, which took longer than I would have liked, but, but, you know, I can be really greedy about that. My, my idea of how long this should take should have been about 20 minutes, took a little longer than that. Um, (laughs) 
And by the, but at one point I looked when, when we did successfully get this medication to this patient and he's doing well with it. Um, it, there were 27 people on the email chain. So there were 27 people working for one patient. And, um, you know, that's not the most efficient business model you could come <laughs> up with, but, um, but I happen to know because I've gotten to know this, this individual's, uh, daughter a little bit that, that he has evidence of, of an effective, this being an effective treatment and he feels better and he's back out to doing, you know, two mile walks through the woods, you know, which you can appreciate as a, as a lung cancer survivor, you know, sometimes you don't have, he didn't have that opportunity when we first started. So uh, the sense of gratification that went with that uh, is, you know, worth all the time I spent on weekends and nights and things like that, you know, treating groups of mice. So it, uh, <laughs> even if, even if it's the only one. So it's, it's really what we've tried to do with EMD is become very, we, we call it patient directed as a patient to patient centric or patient focused. And that sounds like we're playing with words, but, but in fact, what it is, is we look at, um, we, we want to actively incorporate the voice of the patient in the decisions that we make at earlier stages, because if we successfully develop a drug that, you know, that says, you know, we can, we can do this and all it requires is, you know, six IV infusions a day or something like that, you know, uh, right, the patients right. are going to go, yeah, no, we're done. Uh, sorry, that's yeah. just not going to work for me. So, so the voice of the patient in terms of where their uh, successes are, where medicine is not meeting their, you know, their expectations, where, um, you know, how they would like to do as much as they can living a normal life uh, while they've been hit with this diagnosis, you know, that's, that's an important voice. And, and so we have to put the time and effort into understanding the, 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 you know, there, there are customers, but more importantly, they're the people we're trying to help. So, you know, customer makes it sound monetary and I don't mean it that way. What I'm simply saying is at the end of the day, if we do something great, but it doesn't work for patients and it, you know, has it, then it, we really haven't accomplished anything. Well, that's, you broke up a really good point. As I, I, I just, I do some consulting um, on what's called the patient insights board at uh, metadata. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing a lot of work to try to bring that patient voice to clinical trial experience, right? And, and they, of course, they, they are involved with a lot of clinical trials. And we had a, a project the other day talking about, you know, the patient burden and like the burden, like creating a burden index. And it's, and it's really, you know, when you think about that, it's like you, what you just said about the, you know, it's, oh, it's only six infusions, you know, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, like. You know, and so sometimes we'll hear things and we're just, as a team, we're just going, no, wait, stop, hold it, you know? Right. And, and it's right. great. To, it's awesome. And, and metadata, is, they've done a really great job uh, and they, they really have implemented a lot of the stuff that we, that we've given insights to. So I think well, it's and, just, and, yeah. Yeah. No, that goes back to what I was, was saying sort of about where, where I think medical affairs can really serve a great function because we can, we can serve as, as, you know, essentially the two-way translation for that from from the research and development side from the people who discover the drugs and do all of the work that goes into getting a drug to a clinical stage and if we keep the voice of the patient in mind at the earlier stages then we won't find ourselves at the end of the day with a great drug that from a scientific standpoint that works beautifully and is completely unreasonable 
to be able to work with. And that's an exaggerated example of it. Of course, but yeah. it, it shows how how or how important the voice of the patient is and how early it needs to be incorporated. Yeah. Well, yeah. And speaking of speaking of early, it just, it just makes me think, you know, another topic that I, I, I'd love to have you uh, share with the, our, our audience is, is talking about, you know, biomarker testing, because, mm, yeah. you know, when I think of, when I think of, for me personally, you know, thinking of and reading about patients that are not getting testing and when, and there's treatments that are available, particularly we're speaking specifically about non-small cell lung cancer mm-hmm. and the number of biomarkers that there are now that have a targeted therapy. And it's amazing that you would think that's a no brainer, but then I get something like insurance and co-pays and, and all these different things that are getting in the way. And, and I mean, we can talk, we could talk for six hours about this topic, but I just love to, to kind of, you know, share your thoughts about like, where we're at and why why it's so important and you know where are we going with making sure that patients get you know access i think and sure. equity that's what i think yeah. absolutely and and anybody who works with me inside emd can tell you that this is i i mean six hours i could be going at this for six weeks straight um <laughs> it, it's absolutely a a pain point and a passion point and and i think there's there's two things first of all i think we have to look at where we've come from and if we, you and I were having this conversation 10 years ago about non-small cell lung cancer, we might have been talking about EGFR, um, but mostly we would have been talking about disease defined by histology, whether it was squamous or non-squamous, and we'd have been talking about um, chemotherapy options. And And... I, I know you know from the, from the work you do, and and um, that that you know I'm not besmirching chemotherapy, um, but it's sort of a one size fits all, and and that this is downplaying its importance a little too much. It can be sort of a one size fits all sledgehammer, uh, and the problem with sledgehammers is that they're not particularly accurate. You know, you may hit the nail, you may also crush the board that's under the nail. And uh, in, this, in this case, you may hit the tumor and then the patient does, you know, really struggles. In the past 10 years, we have discovered what are now nine actionable biomarkers, oncogenic drivers that are mutations in specific enzymes that literally drive the formation and the survival of non-small cell lung cancer types. And, um, and, and what I say nine, we actually know there are many more mutations than that. That's nine we have drugs for, okay, um, because I'm separating out two, two groups of EGFR. And, um, and several of those have been within the last two or three years. So the question for those, and, uh, for those is how do you decide which drug for which patient. And that's the whole concept. You mentioned precision medicine earlier. That's the driver behind precision medicine. And the goal, and it sounds like a, a bumper sticker slogan, but it's, it, it's the actual goal of precision medicine is the right drug to the right patient at the right time. Uh, and what it says is, you know, if you have an EGFR mutation, you need a different therapy than if you have an alk fusion, or if you, um, and because the 
drug that works, especially the second and third generation drugs that are much more specific for EGFR and have fewer uh, off-target effects demonstrated with them, work exquisitely well for EGFR and won't do anything for a patient with ALK and vice versa. So the question is, how do you, how do you identify those patients? Well, at the same time, people have been working away and uh, trying to identify biomarkers to simply say, uh, help us identify patients. People have been working equally rapidly looking for inhibitors of the end. Most, most of these are kinases. Most of these are you know, enzy enzymes that, that phosphorylate proteins intracellularly. And, and um, so they've been developing inhibitors. At the same time, the people on the genomic side have been almost more rapidly than we can keep up with identifying new markers in patients. And so we have the technology at this point through what's known as next generation sequencing is the most advanced version of this currently available to differentiate these groups of people and get them to the right drugs. And, and, and so we have to stop and celebrate the fact that we've come this far. And now essentially two thirds or more of adenocarcinoma non-small cell patients, which is the vast majority of non-small cells. So it's the biggest bulk of patients with lung cancer. Have a drug or more than one drug that is specific to their subtype, right? So that's, that's a huge accomplishment in a decade. But before we get too carried away patting ourselves on the back, we have to recognize the fact that while these exist in theory, in practice, they're not being put to the same level of use as could be the case, okay? Um, you, we've seen a lot of data recently. It's the, the medicine, like any other organization, can have spurts of rapid advancement and then a lot of time before the whole population um, finally turns to that course. I, I liken it many times to you know, trying to turn an ocean liner, uh, which is my understanding. If you want to turn an ocean liner 180 degrees, it takes like 10 miles and three hours to get the, the whole thing turned around. Um, and what we'd like to do is have medicine act more like a speedboat where you just crank the wheel and go that way. Um, but it, you know, it isn't there yet. And that's because, you know, doctors are people and, and they have things that they're used to doing. And and there's a, there's an inform there's not, I'm not sure there's an information gap. Uh, we, we, we've been spending a lot of time since I've been at EMD trying to understand where the gap is. And, and I'll point out a specific example. Um, just at this past ASCO, there was a presentation done by somebody who had done a record search for uh, U.S. oncology, um, which is a very large nationwide um, re uh, community practice consortium of offices that all operate under the U.S. oncology umbrella. And there are tremendous benefits to being able to do that um, because there, there are pooling of resources and information and things like that. The U.S. oncology, uh, somebody did a study of the U.S. oncology records for over a three-year period. Um, and this, I think, went up to 2018. So the information's lagging a little bit behind, but it takes time to do these studies and gather the information. 
and showed out of that time, out of the what were the five actionable markers or four actionable with a drug associated and one um, prognostic marker, which has since had a drug associated with it, the amount of NGS testing that was used in that group was less than 50%. And this is from a large organization delivering you know, the standard of care, in many cases, the state of the art of the care. Um, but um, their physicians have some latitude with, with how to operate, which is fine. Um, and, and I've talked to the people at U.S. Oncology, and it's like, well, where's the gap? And well, we're working on it because, because at the same time, and I know you know this, if you've gone to, to ASCO, for instance, or any other national or international meeting, you know, the academic thought leaders in the lung oncology space are absolutely telling people up front, targeted therapy, specific targeted therapy is your best option up front for a patient. Well, in order to do that, you have to test for biomarkers. You can't just pick a targeted therapy and think it might work for your patient because some of these things that we're talking about are relatively small groups of patients. Um, you know, there's two or three that I can mention that have the therapies that are associated with them that make up about 3% of, of the total number of patients with a non-small cell adenocarcinoma, which, you know, so, so you're not going to be, you're not going to randomly pick one and it happened to be the right patient. Um, now the, the, the silver lining in that U S oncology data, which, which one of my colleagues called sobering, I actually called it something worse than that, um, was, was that if you look over the three year period, that trend is coming up. So we're getting better about it. Um, the percentages of people who were testing at the beginning of the three year period was about 30% less than the percent people who were testing at the end end of it. But still, you know, the rate at which it's being adopted simply isn't there. And we still, on a day-to-day -day basis, our field medical people talk to physicians and, and get some pushback about biomarker testing. And, and I'm not so sure that that really makes sense. Part of it is, is the fact that the field is moving so fast. And, and there were three different targeted therapies in three spaces, which heretofore had not had a drug approved within the last two and a half years. So that's that. that five that U.S. oncology was doing has now become eight, you know, and, and, and just early this year became nine um, or early uh, mid last year. And um, so some of it is, well, if I get a patient with a particular fusion and there's no drug for it, why am I testing for it? It doesn't do anything. One of the things that we know and we're still trying to gather more information on is that many of the conventional things that people would use uh, for patients with, with oncogenic drivers don't work particularly well. They may get a response, but it's usually short. You know, it's a, it's a short-term answer. Um, and sometimes that's important, you know, to get, to get the patient over a hurdle, but it's not going to be the best drug for the longest time. And um, so much of the medical community, much of the pharmaceutical community is trying to look at ways in which we can get better information to especially community physicians, because it turns out they are ones who write like 85% of the prescriptions for treating lung cancer patients. Um, and, uh, and, and those guys are overwhelmed. You know, they've got a ton of things going. I mean, in a pre-COVID world, they were, you know, busy seeing multiple patients. 
So the question partly becomes how to get them the right information, which certainly has been happening at, at Congresses. But, you know, is that the best way to get them information they can deal with and, and handle? And that's one of the things that, that we're still trying to find ways to find messages that can handle in, in you know, bite-sized chunks and actionable chunks. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I hear this uh, from other people as well. And it's, it's, and I often say that I don't blame the community oncologists or begrudge them at, at all. I, I just want to help. I mean, I just, and the, and the right. people that I, a lot of people have on my show, we're all in this together. I, I it's a mantra that I've been using um, ever since I started my blog in 2013. And I mean it. And people who know me know when I say that we're all in this together, it's not just a slogan. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's like it requires basic scientific research. It requires uh, 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 academic research. It requires pharmaceutical uh, industry. It requires uh, oncologists and and uh, pathologists. And it, it's just in its patients and caregivers and friends and neighbors. So I, when I say that we're all in this together, the things that you touched on, you know, we're, we're making progress and I'm happy mm -hmm. to hear that we're making progress. And I think it's guys like us that we just want to, you know, like you said earlier, you know, if it's, it's not in something that should take, you know, uh, six weeks, it should take maybe 20 minutes, but it's, we can't make it happen in 20 minutes, unfortunately. Right. right. So, yeah. No. Um, and, and I know, but I think that's actually the, the, the importance. And this is one of the reasons why I was certainly happy to, to talk to you and, and come today is I, you know, we know now that people in, in 2022 now, um, get information in a lot of different ways. Um, there's actually a group of medical oncologists, many of them are academics, but not all of them that I follow on Twitter. And then my children will tell you they were appalled, not appalled, fascinated to find out that I was on Twitter because I'm not a big social media fan um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But, but for instance, the quality of the information that this group of medical oncologists, you know, share with each other on Twitter is it's like, you know, getting a, the, the latest journal information or even more, you know, recent information than that delivered to your phone. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons why we want to look for varying ways to, uh, get information to people in a way in which they will handle, they can, they can deal with it. Because you mentioned, for instance, the community oncologist, you know, the academic, um, KOL that works in non-small cell or in lung cancer. Um, and this is not to negate the importance of what they do because they contribute extraordinarily good things to the field. Um, but the average community medical oncologist doesn't focus on lung. Right. You know, they, exactly. they, they, they may see, you know, they may have four patients in their office in various rooms and they may walk from the out of the examining room from the lung cancer patient into the next room where there's a breast cancer patient into the next room where there's a colorectal carcinoma patient into the next room where there's a liver cancer patient. So, how to have them be able to keep up. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's just amazing. And yet it also goes back to the critical nature of, of why this is important. And I, I have something that, that actually in talking to a patient advocacy group, um, as, as I mentioned, um, uh, 
some of the some of these oncogenic drivers that that are so important to the people who have them because it drives their lung cancer represent like three percent of the total population. And um, and I happen to work in an area where where one of the drugs we look at is is one of those three percent sort of numbers close to it. There's a couple of them actually, a couple of different drivers. Um, and I uh, I it's a slightly funny story. It wasn't intended to be, uh, but I I got. Uh, we were meeting with a patient advocacy group, and one of the co-founders of the group said, used a phrase that stuck in my head, said, you know, there's a new lung cancer patient born every two minutes in the United States. And I was like, that can't be right. Wait. Okay, if I remember Rent, which I've actually never seen, but I know the song, there's 525,600 minutes in a year. There's roughly 228,000 new lung cancer patients diagnosed each year, each year in the United States. So I after got off the phone with her. So that's basically one every two minutes. So I got off the phone with her and I looked at my our 3% population and I did the math. And it turns out that if you bang it down, that out of if you have a an incidence of an oncogenic driver, like I said, there's more than one of them, that's around that three to four percent mark. That's a that's a patient every 90 minutes, a new patient every 90 minutes that could be discovered, okay, with a specific mutation, which means there's 16 a day, every day. And when you start looking at it that way, that, you know, in the time you and I are going to talk, there probably will be a new patient for our group that will be, quote unquote, born, unwillingly born. Um, so how how you then so so I put that through and I did the math like three times because I was coming up with 16 a day that can't be right, but I did and I sent it out and I sent this out to a couple of different people and one of the people that it landed on the desk with is our head of R and D for our particular um, targeted therapy in non-small cell and he, he came back to me the next day. He's actually based at our parent company in Germany. And he said, you know, I've got a whole bunch of people working really, really hard to make sure that we get this right. And you just added a sense of urgency to it that I had never appreciated before. Um, I'd like to say thank you, but. <laughs> right, right, right. Sorry, you know, but it occurred to me and I had to share and everybody was just like, yeah, and, and this is all we need to know. I mean, if you want to talk about why we do what we do and why I can get look at the progress we've made and think that's great. But, you know, it's because if we don't get the right biomarker testing out there, we won't identify those 16 people a day. Yeah. And that's what it boils down to. Totally, totally. That's that's actually a great story, and, and I sometimes do the same thing with, with these, this you know, math problems trying to understand like that. How is that possible? But it's actually it is it it, it is actually true. So, um, I wanted to um, you know the last thing I really wanted to talk to you about was was the White Ribbon Project, and I know you know mm -hmm. uh, how much I care about that, and I do. Um, and I actually brought ribbons that day to uh, you know to to give to some people. I think. Um, you know, that was really, that was really important to me to, to, uh, to be for that, for that event. But I, I'd like to ask you, like, when, when we think about biomarker testing and all some of these other challenges that we have, mm -hmm. and certainly stigma is a challenge. And I don't mean just this, you know, the going back in the history of why there's a stigma, but 
but I, I feel like that's still part of that equation of like I completely people agree. thinking of lung cancer as a different disease than breast cancer. And right. they treat it and they talk about it differently. They, they think about it differently. And what we're doing with the White Ribbon Project is really, you know, t- trying to let people know, like my neighbors um, who came when I built White Ribbons in my driveway and they, and they learned things that they had never known that they, right. the two of them never smoked. The, the, those two, the, the husband and wife, they could get lung cancer. Right. Like next week they could get a diagnosis of lung cancer, not even yeah. know it. Yeah. So anyway, long winded uh, way to ask a question of like your thoughts to just quickly give your thoughts on, on, on the pro on the project and, and what impact you think it's having. So, um, it, you know, any, so, so, so first of all, I, I think, you know, this kind of effort is, is pivotal because you're right. There can be, nobody looks at a breast cancer patient and says, what did you do to earn this? You know, what did you do to yourself? And people do do it with lung cancer and it's completely unfair. And it's very simple. Do we know that smoking has a causal relationship with lung cancer? Yes, we do. We also know it is as much a fact that not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer and that not all lung cancer patients are current or former smokers. Many of them have never picked up a cigarette in their life or been around anybody who did or anything else. You know, there are, and, and the reality is, like I said, you know, we, many, the, I mentioned that 65% of the biggest group of lung cancer patients have an oncogenic driver. The percentage of smokers in most of those patients with lung, with, with oncogenic drivers is very, very low. The vast majority of people didn't smoke, have no smoking history, but they got this mutated gene that built a lung tumor for them. And, um, so you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, there's a, a, the stigma can't matter. And I realize it does, but, but that's part of the overall awareness thing. Uh, we, even if somebody did something that caused them to be in this situation, which again, most of them never did, um, you know, so, so what, we're going to turn our back on them. <laughs> We're going right. to walk away, say, sorry, you know, you get what you pay for it. No, you know, people do all sorts of foolish things. Um, and, and sometimes unknowingly, uh, you know, and, and that, that put them in positions and, and yet as a society, you know, we, we can either say, you know, shame on you and you get what you deserve, or we can say, what can I do to help? And yeah. it's why organizations, um, that advocate for patients and create awareness and drive awareness and sometimes annoy people with you know how much they're trying to get information into people who may not want to listen do such a vital service i mean you mentioned earlier you know we're all in this together if we don't pull all of the resources we can if we don't pull the basic scientists who sit and stare at enzyme kinetic curves and the clinical researcher who looks at, you know, Kaplan-Meier plots for survival and um, the physicians who help administer clinical trials and the patients who, you know, give up time effort in, in looking for, you know, the, the hope of, of a better life and the advocate groups who simply say, you know, look, guys, you're not paying enough attention to this. If we don't pay attention to the efforts of all of those people, then we're 
we're maybe never going to make the progress we should make, and we're certainly going to make it much slower right. if if we don't do that. So so I am you know I have had ever since I got into the oncology space, like I said, I started with liquid cancers, and I've been very fortunate to work with. Um, patient advocacy groups and patient support groups. And uh, they are the most amazing groups of people. You would expect uh, the first group, I first organization I worked with was in a disease that was primarily a disease of older people for which there was no cure. It was simply, you know, maybe we can buy you some time. And the first couple of patient support groups I went to, I thought, okay, this is just, this could be deadly, you know, literally, not literally, but, you know, figuratively because of, you know, older people with not much hope. And I got smacked in the face with the exact opposite. This was yeah. the most energetic, hopeful, committed group of people to simply saying, you know, what can we do to help make this work? And yeah, and yeah. so things like the White Ribbon Project, things that create additional awareness are, are a vital piece of what we do because they can impact this all across the board from providing patients information to, you know, maybe reallocating or driving research dollars to, you know, all to reminding the people who are working in the field to raise your head up out of the lab every once in a while and remember the people associated with what you do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I appreciate your, your, uh, your comments about that. And, uh, Richard, it's just been an honor for me to to have you uh, on the show today, and uh, it really, I think the theme of the show is so we're all in this together. But I think it's also important, and, and I'm happy to share, you know, the the purpose driven work that you do and and why it matters to you. So, thank you so much for being on the show, and um, I really do appreciate it. I, you know, thank you, Dave, for for inviting me on, and thank you for the work that you're doing to. Um, uh, to drive these these kinds of efforts, because as I mentioned, I think it's critical. And and uh, you know, it's it's Friday afternoon as you and I are speaking, but uh, I'm obviously going to have to unplug from this call and get back in my computer because there's work to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again, Richard. I hope to see you soon. All the best, Dave. <laughs>